0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at
1: Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. No peace. Outrage and protests no over peace. the death of George Floyd show no sign of letting up. A diverse group of demonstrators in Georgia and worldwide say they're fed up with racial discrimination and police violence. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, we speak to Georgians on the ground as protests turn to outrage and get context for the history of resistance in the city too busy to hate.
2: Wherever you've seen the most oppression, you've seen the most resistance. Black people have been fighting like hell the whole time.
1: While overwhelmingly peaceful, early signs of property damage and confrontations with police in Atlanta led protesters and residents to look closer at a legacy of pain. I will never ever suggest
3: that we should condemn black boys and women and children and grown folks uh, who go out and break glass when collectively as a black people there's been a knee on our necks
1: voices of a movement coming up after the news From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. We are now into the second week of protests across the country after the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer. The accumulated rage over centuries of racial violence spilled into the streets, streets nearly empty just weeks ago because of the COVID 19 pandemic. Getting a variety of perspectives today on the motivations and responses and demands for systemic change raised by an unprecedented and diverse group of Americans. Joining me are Reverend Kim Jackson of the Episcopal Church of the Common Ground, who attended the Atlanta protests. And Kim, thank you so much for being with us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Also with us, Dr. Maurice Hobson, historian, associate professor of African-American studies at Georgia State University and author of The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics and Class and the Making of Modern Atlanta. Maurice, thank you so much for taking the time.
2: Pleasure is all mine.
1: And Raisa Habersham has been reporting on the protest for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Raisa, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. D'Angelo Morrison is Director of Services and Advocacy at He is Valuable, which supports Black queer youth. He's attended most of the Atlanta protests since they started. D'Angelo, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. And Coco Papi, an activist based in Savannah, nice to have you back with us.
0: As always, thank you for having me.
1: D'Angelo, I'm going to start with you. Millions of people were horrified by the video of George Floyd's death. Not all motivated to protest, but you have. You've been out there on the streets of Atlanta. What did you imagine or hope would happen as a result?
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm tired of seeing hashtag after hashtag, Black man after Black man, Black woman after Black woman, Black trans woman after Black trans woman killed in the media. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the police officers harassing my community in this way. And the message for me is stop. I'm done. We're all done. We have to end this now.
1: You documented what you were seeing and hearing and feeling. Here's a clip from just one of the videos you posted. Here you're reflecting on that first night of demonstrations in Atlanta.
4: So y'all saw me last night experiencing uh, my first protest that kind of got violent and kind of got crazy. Uh, But today I'm going to walk through and just look at some, a little bit of the aftermath, a little bit of the next day.
1: D'Angelo, I know you were out there for days and saw many scenes, but can you describe overall what you experienced?
4: Yeah, I've participated in many protests over my time. Um, marriage equality, climate change, Occupy Wall shoot. But the thing that's different about this one is I feel like my life is threatened every time I step out there. I mean, that was the first day I ever been te- tear gassed in my entire life. Um, like, I mean, it was just a little bit out of control. It was a little bit crazy. This was on Friday. But over the course of the rest of the weekend, I saw things get a lot more calmer. I saw a lot more um, fighting against people who may have wanted to lose, um, making sure our voices was heard to so the police officers that were lined up. Um, I saw a lot of people coming together. Um, and I I definitely want that to be heard and known around the country, around Georgia, is that we're not all looters, we're not all terrorizing our community, we are out there peacefully protesting, and this is not going to stop.
1: Reese, I want to ask you, you covered the protests for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, so also saw many different scenes over a series of days, but overall, how were you seeing the protests evolve for what is now going into the second week?
5: So it started out your traditional protest marching to the Capitol. I stayed behind to get a few quotes from people. Um, By the time I was headed back to Centennial, um, that's when I saw some protesters uh, standing off with police. Um, So I saw that tension from the jump. Mm -hmm. I saw rapidly I was on the side where police were. Um, I saw them bring in their SWAT team, and I saw them bring in reinforcements, and I saw the situation just quickly escalate and go from there. Um, my situation was a little different in that I had to go to multiple scenes uh, throughout the day. I was at a press conference where Keisha Lance Bottoms um, emphatically told people, go home, because um, I can't protect you. Go home. From there, I went back downtown where I saw a few burning cars. And then I went to Lenox, where um, you saw much of the property damage there. It was very much an effort to kind of control the situation on the part of police, as many protesters and some looters spread throughout the city. As Keisha Lance Bottom said, it was uh, chaotic.
1: On that first night of demonstrations last Friday, when things took a turn, there was vandalism at CNN's headquarters and in Centennial Park. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms appeared in a very emotional press conference, which included Bernice King, T.I. and Killer Mike. Let's hear a clip of what Killer Mike had to say.
4: This city's cut different. In this city, you can find over 50 restaurants
2: owned by black women. I didn't say minority and I didn't say women of color. So after you burn down your own home, what do you have left but char
4: and
1: ash? Maurice Killer Mike there with an appeal for a city that has prided itself on its Black leadership and politics and community and culture. His speech and others were praised by some, but also got a lot of criticism. How do you think they were received?
2: Uh, That's a that's a complicated uh, situation on one level. I mean, I think that Mayor Lance Bottoms uh, starting out her. Press conference saying that you know first and foremost that she's a mother. I think that that showed the showed the humane aspect of what she was doing, and um, and then you know of course Killer Mike's impassioned pleas, Ti's emotional uh, plea to the public, you know, to this is not what we do, and 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 that's been touted, but that's not necessarily accurate. And this is not to challenge what uh, Mr. Harris and Mr. Rinder were saying. This is not to challenge them, but there's a historical context. This city has erupted before, and it has erupted uh, quite a bit. Atlanta's place in history is when Booker T. Washington gave the speech in 1895 in, in, in Piedmont Park, which W.E.B. Du Bois later deemed as the Atlantic Compromise. That set the stage for Plessy versus Ferguson, which made segregation, it codified segregation into law. And so when we begin to have this conversation, just as much as Atlanta has been this poster child for race relations, uh, there's a feverish pitch that is just below the surface. And this is what you're saying that that is playing out.
1: Well, Mayor Bottoms' national profile certainly was elevated that night. She has been called in the past the mayor of two cities, won a close runoff election against Mary Norwood. And Atlanta is the city with the highest income inequality in America. So we are living in a divided city. Reverend Jackson, something that you and your parish know well. And you were at some of the protests in Atlanta, also part of the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, back in 2014. So how did the dynamics of those two compare? I did go to Ferguson
3: and sit on the front lines as a chaplain, and uh, I want to be clear about what that means as a As a protest chaplain. My job is to be present with people, and um, I'm not a protester and I'm not a police officer. I stand in between to be present with um, the emotions that are showing up. Uh, So, you know, the stories when people line up in front of a police officer and they tell their story, whether I'm in Ferguson or in Atlanta, those those stories are remarkably the same. Feeling as though they've been over policed, um, feeling like they've been harassed. That's the stories of being pulled out of their vehicles, which we've seen scenes of in Atlanta. Right. So that's what I'm hearing is. Uh, this bubbling over of frustration. Yes, people want justice for George Floyd and people want justice in their own cities, in their own backyards.
1: Coco, you are in Savannah. How similar or different is what's going on there to what you're seeing in the headlines and, and these scenes from Atlanta?
0: Right. I mean, I think we're incredibly lucky that we have the leadership of people like Mayor Van Johnson, who not only led our march on Sunday with civil rights leaders as doctor and ex-mayor Otis Johnson, with Francis Johnson, um, with people who have been doing this work for so, so long. But he also announced the creation of an equity task force that will review every single legislative policy created by the city of Savannah, right? I think it is one thing to march, right? But then there's all the very sometimes invisible work that has to be done moving forward to ensure that you don't have to keep showing up in the streets.
1: Talking today with a number of guests about the George Floyd protests that have spread nationwide, no signs of letting up. We're discussing the long history and present realities of protest movements for equal justice and what may come next. Raisa mentioned covering that first night of the demonstrations when things erupted. Initially, the destruction, the broken windows, the graffiti... And a lot of that took place downtown near Centennial Park. But then, as the night wore on, moved up to Buckhead. And Maurice, I wonder if you have thoughts on this, because in in the past, riots have taken place in marginalized neighborhoods in South Philly, in Watts, in Compton, not Melrose or Grove Street, or Buckhead, the center of luxury shops, a place where the wealthy or more elite Atlantans live and 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 does that complicate or add to this narrative of the two different Atlantas?
2: Sure, I do have thoughts. And, and so I wanna give you all just a very brief historical kind of contexting of this. In 1966, uh, Mayor Ivan Allen, had, who had run on a platform uh, that he would make Atlanta a sports and entertainment city, erected the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium uh, in the Washington-Rawston neighborhood, which borders downtown Atlanta, but also ran up against uh, what some would consider a ghetto, but a black community called Summer Hill. And the police there shot a black man by the name of Harold Prather in the back and he dies. I mean, they shoot him in the back. He means it's not a threat. What happens is uh, a groundswell of activity takes place and we see a rebellion. I used to term rebellion or insurrection instead of riot because of how it plays out Mm -hmm. in the media is this presented as if a riot is, you know, just energy that is there to destroy, whereas a rebellion or insurrection is really a stab at an oppressive system. And so with this, you know, Ivan Allen shows up and he's booed and hissed, they throw bottles at him, they shoot shots in the air. And so there's 750 police officers in riot gear that show up in that community. 150 of them were there to protect Atlanta's investment in terms of, of the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. 1967, you have the police that shoot a child uh at the flamingo grill in dixie hills you see absolute unrest break out because the city refused to provide proper sanitation they refused to build parks and recreation for children so that they could have something to do things break out and because of this in in february of 1968 president lyndon b johnson called for the creation of a report um i want to just make sure that i get it correct because the,
1: the kerner commission
2: it's the Kerner Commission, but that's, not the, that's the known name. I want the actual name. So that report is called the National Commission on Civil Disorders. And this happens in February of 1968. King is assassinated in April of 1968. And Atlanta is the only city that does not protest because they respect King. But when it's put in the media, it's presented as if they did it because Atlanta had good leadership. This was Black Atlanta paying respect to their most beloved son, but I'm saying all this to you because the Atlanta Journal and Constitution at the time did a series of stories on looking at how the Kerner Report plays out in Atlanta, and what they argue is there are two different Atlantas, a white one and a black one going in different directions. But in my research, I actually take it further and say that there are more than ten Black Atlantas, and not all of them see things the same way. But what all of us do understand as an underlying issue, social injustice and state supported violence against uh, marginalized communities. Not just black people, but brown people, the LGBTQIA community, poor people and, and, and other constituents.
1: The Kerner Commission report also implicated decades of racial bias in federal housing policy, in education policy, in bank lending, and the kind of institutional racism that has played out over and over again as the cause of these uprisings. And I really did want to take your point about calling them riots versus rebellions. The language here is important in the way that it's been communicated in the media and other places. The, the New York Times might use a headline that describes absolute chaos, whereas the Washington Post leads with outrage. I'd, I'd love to get into that. Property damage and broken windows, that meant a lot of media coverage and a lot of anger uh, from residents. How does that compare to what you saw, D'Angelo?
4: What I saw when I was out there, even during the parts where people were breaking windows and setting flags on fire and all of those different things were happening. Um, I also saw people out there defending properties, telling people not to go into that building, not to throw the fire into that building to set it on fire. I saw those things too, but that stuff does not get promoted or talked about in the media as much because it's not a part of the narrative, I think, that they want to push uh, to make it seem like Black and brown people are dangerous and are trying to, you know, destroy the city. Um, So I just want to say that I really want the media to really take a really good look at the way that they've been reporting this and how that is contributing to all of the issues that we're having on the ground.
1: Well, that's something to explore because it's not as if peaceful protests of police violence had been welcomed either. We think of the outcry after Colin Kaepernick took a knee. We've got a clip from a video here that Bernice King posted. I've seen it many other places as well. It's a couple of black men, different ages, talking about tactics for the protests. And I think the the difference is striking.
2: So what I need to do right now at 16 is come up
3: with a better way. Because how we doing it, it ain't working. He angry at 46. I'm angry at 31. You angry at 16. Mm.
2: Dude, yeah, sex, man. I mean? it's old, you man. understand mes I mean. it's holding it's yourself it's in harm's way it's is not know. the way who's no,
3: not you and another other your counterparts the same agent that has that same power y'all coming with a better way because we ain't doing it oh my god
1: there's so much brought up in this conversation and it illustrates of course there's no monolithic movement here. As Maurice Hobson put it, there are 10 different Atlantas and so many different frustrations and needs and ways of approaching this. But I have seen signs from some of the protests that say, are we here again? I'm wondering for you, Kim, have you heard that frustration in the black community? You know, peaceful protests, legislative action, programs in the community. All that has happened and nothing changes.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many different ways that people have tried to address this that um, we would define as, quote, peaceful, and things still haven't changed, right? And so this is a moment where people are saying, we've tried a lot of different tactics. And I want to speak to the fact, you know, I hear in in that clip someone saying, he's 16. Mm -hmm. You know, so what I've seen down there in Atlanta is that it's a lot of 16-year-olds. It's a lot of kids, so these kids come and they confront grown people who are in full armor. The police officers need to be the adults. It's like 5-year-olds taunting, you know, some high school seniors and saying, "Ha ha ha, I got you with some water bottles." And those high school seniors respond with full-out violence. That's what we're seeing happening down there, and somebody's got to call that out. The militarization of our police officers and, quite frankly, bringing an army to fight against 16-year-old kids. I I have watched a girl who could not have weighed 100 pounds be thrown down on the ground by two fully armored grown men. Because she stepped into the street. She didn't throw a water bottle. And even if she had, is that the kind of force that you need that is required in order to counter a water bottle being thrown? We need all of those who have a power to actually show up and be adults here and say, we are working with a whole bunch of children who have a right to be angry because their lives have not gone the way they should have gone. And we're going to hear them and respect them and not respond with force. Like Mm -hmm. that is what we really need to see happen down there and all across this nation quite Quite
1: frankly. I'm also seeing you know, that cops are pigs or protests are animals or savages. The way we talk about who is participating here and how that shapes the narrative, that could be a question for you, Maurice, who wrote about the legend of the Black Mecca in The City Too Busy to Hate. So I wonder how
2: you're looking at this. Um, I have a lot of friends that are police officers. And when I saw things take place the other night, particularly in Birmingham too, I mean, Birmingham erupted I sent all of my friends who are police officers text messages and like, I'm praying for you. I hope that you're OK. And many of them, you know, were just lamenting about how difficult it is to be in this situation. And they have tough jobs. I mean, they see different things. And I don't know if they get the adequate accommodations in terms of uh, mental health preparation and guidance, counseling. Um, they're, they're, they're fatigued, too. And so we're really at a place to where we have to allow for humanity to show up. And we need it on all sides. And as Reverend Jackson said, I mean, we need adults. My, my father used to say, somebody gotta have some good sense. And so that's that's what we're we're trying to really push here. And and hopefully this will come from this.
1: We're gonna take a quick break and be back to this conversation with my guests, Dr. Maurice Hobson, Reverend Kim Jackson, Raisa Habisham, D'Angelo Morrison, and Coco Papi, talking about the George Floyd protest, the motivations, the tactics. And, hopefully, where we go from here. This is On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. On Wednesday, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison announced upgraded charges against former officer Derek Chauvin and issued second-degree murder and manslaughter charges against the three officers who failed to intervene when Chauvin held his knee on George Floyd's neck as he lay restrained on the ground for more than eight minutes. Well, we are jumping right back into our conversation about the protests against police brutality and racial injustice that have seized Georgia and the whole country and and the world even and show no signs of letting up. We're getting some perspective from people on the ground at the protests like Reverend Kim Jackson of the Episcopal Church of the Common Ground, D'Angelo Morrison, Director of Services and Advocacy for He is Valuable, and Raisa Habisham, who reported on the uprisings for the AJC. Coco Papias, with us, an activist from Savannah and participated in demonstrations there. And we're also getting some additional context from historian and Georgia State professor, Dr. Maurice Hobson, author of The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics and Class in the Making of Modern Atlanta. And to reiterate, at the root of the protests is accumulated anger over cases of police violence, which detonated after a video showing the killing of George Floyd. Let's get to that. Atlanta Chief of Police Erica Shields cited that video during protests last Friday.
0: You know, you get an employee like we just saw up in Minneapolis, and
1: you're like, to me, that's not even a police issue. You're just a really cold son of a... So that's pretty unusual. Police typically refrain from crossing the thin blue line and speaking out against other cops. We now know that at least 17 complaints have been made against Derek Chauvin during his 20 years in the force with minimal reprimand. But even reform-minded police chiefs and mayors in several cities say it is difficult to create meaningful culture change in the ranks. Police have strong unions. There's qualified immunity protections in court. Maurice, what does it mean to have someone like Erica Shields call out other officers for excessive use of force?
2: So, you know, one of the things that we must consider in terms of the historical context was in the 1980s here in Atlanta with the rise of crack cocaine and the militarization of the police and creating the Red Dog Police to clean up the streets because of crack cocaine. The Red Dogs were notorious. They cost the city millions in terms of damage, in terms of settlements. And so what happens with this is the police chief, who, who who I believe is smart and humane, and how she is looking at what is taking place. The police chief understood that, and they understood that there's always been a tenuous relationship between the police department and black citizens. and And I want to say this just very quickly. In the 18th century, the National Guard were created to control enslaved populations on plantations. The Georgia National Guard was initially created, uh, or they were called state militias, to control insurrections of enslaved Africans. And so when we begin to understand this long-standing history and the epigenetics that has been passed down, the city of Atlanta understood that they must react quickly and that there must, must be a public show of force in terms of not tolerating and or holding police officers accountable all protesters want is equal protection and due process under the law, which is the 14th amendment. We want justice. We just, we don't want the police to be the judge and jury. They can't arrest us and kill us. We should have our day in court.
1: Just getting that historical context adds so much to our understanding. Governor Brian Kemp did dispatch the national guard in addition to the Atlanta police department. But the police here, they're in a really tough position, and I want to avoid generalizing against all law enforcement and their motivations for becoming police. So let's look at the role of the police, which are, you know, caught in between protecting the right of free speech and dispersing or, or controlling crowds. What's the right balance here? D'Angelo, I'm interested in hearing from you as somebody who was on the ground.
4: Yeah. I don't think all people that are out there hate the police. We are just tired of seeing, you know, the things that we've been seeing. In my involvement, I definitely have seen a lot of the escalation of violence coming from the part of the police. I mean, with the people throwing things and stuff like that, we've seen that. Um, But the police does not make it better when they go out and then tear gas the whole group of people and forced the people to run up the street. And now they're angry, and now they're gonna break a window. I personally do not hate the police. And I what I wanna see is that they are held accountable when they do wrong. I really wanna see them be held accountable for their actions.
1: You actually have a video that you posted of you getting tear gas. Let's hear just a little bit of that.
4: Uh, I think it was, oh, shit. <coughs> <coughs> oh. I don't know what it was that they just blew up, but just got everybody coughing this guy here by a coffin is.
1: So that's my guest, D'Angelo, being tear gassed. Of course, we've seen a lot of examples of people uh, being tear gassed, being uh, beaten. You know, nine year old kid maced in Seattle, a old man in a cane pushed to the ground in Salt Lake City that he was helped back up later. A lot of documentation of police pepper spraying, tear gassing, shooting rubber bullets, arresting protesters without provocation. So what is the impact of these videos circulating widely on social media, being shared in circles that may not have been exposed to this imagery in the first place? Kim, you want to uh, answer that? Yeah, sure. People being able to sit at home and see these images
3: of, it's—it's frankly, it's police brutality, which is what protesters are protesting against, have a similar effect of what was happening in the 1960s when people saw fire hoses and dogs sicked on Black people who were protesting. Uh, You know, if we look in Atlanta, more and more people are showing up. And I think more and more people are showing up for those protests because they've seen these images. And they are becoming more and more aware of, oh, this is a problem. And I think, quite frankly, that tensions become even more tense because of the responses of police. And so, you know, D'Angelo just said this, every time the police tear gas a whole crowd of people, yes, it makes them sick and they cry and all those things, but it also stokes more anger. And that is more likely to lead to, you know, to breaking some things, right? Um, And I want to be clear. I think there is a very big difference between breaking windows and putting a knee on somebody's neck to the point that they cannot breathe. I will never, ever suggest that we should be angry or that we should condemn Black boys and women and children and grown folks who go out and break glass when collectively as a Black people, there's been a knee on our necks.
1: We're talking with a panel of guests about the George Floyd protests that have spread nationwide, of course, representing more than just the murder of George Floyd, but 400 years of the Black experience in the United States and decades of police violence against unarmed Black men like George Floyd, who was handcuffed and on the ground when he was killed. We're talking about the history, the present reality of protest movements and what may come next. Raisa, right, so what we see—the kind of if whether or not we see videos of uh, you know people getting tear gassed or people destroying buildings—probably has a lot to do with what kind of what your social media network looks like and what kind of things are in your feed, your ideological or philosophical tendencies. So you as a member of the media, you know, knowing that your work is going to get out there and be interpreted by people from an ideological point of view, how do you approach that?
5: One thing I try to be mindful of, particularly thinking back on my protest coverage, I did not want to get in the habit of tweeting something unless I had video of it or a picture of it. This is such a crucial time in our history and documentation is key. Um, So I try to be mindful of that and just how I phrase things. While I did tweet about the property damage, I used either crowd or protesters. I used that interchangeably. Um, Rather than looters, for example? Yes, rather than looters. So toward the earlier part of the day, I mostly referred to uh, those out there as protesters. Once this situation changed, I then used crowd. I did not want to get in the habit of labeling someone as something they may not have been because that just isn't there. One thing I did not also use, I did not use riot because riot is negative language. And most people would not characterize this as a riot. They would characterize it likely as rebellion. So that's something to be mindful of going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, one term that I've seen is uprising um, that was particularly uh, phrased. And I wanna say, I believe Baltimore when there was discussion of protests there. Um, So I just try to be mindful of how I use words and the way in which I use them to effectively communicate to people what I see as a member of the media.
1: Well, that is an important point, that it is not necessarily people of color who are behind some of the destruction in these protests. In fact, we've seen evidence to the contrary. After the first couple of nights of protests, officials reported that property destruction was being perpetrated by people outside of these cities, though later numbers did not bear that out. Still a lot of blame on fringe groups inciting destruction, whether that's white nationalists and accelerationists on the right or Antifa and anarchists on the left, both reportedly bent on inciting violence. And we don't yet have a clear picture of how much influence is coming from outside groups. But what does that mean for you, D'Angelo, and other protesters to see others use this as an opportunity for creating chaos?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's really frustrating. I mean, just yesterday I saw a white gentleman come in and throw something at the police officers and run, you know, (laughs) the opposite way. And then the whole crowd of African-American people and other people running after him to catch him because he's trying to incite violence. We're tired of that too. Again, we are out there to peacefully protest to get our message across so that people will hear us at the end of the day. We do not want to continue to have windows broken. We do not want to continue to have rubber bullets shot. People have lost eyes, like lost body parts, you know? that's not okay. And uh, a lot of that is coming from these outside groups coming in and trying to escalate the situation to a place where the people who were there originally don't want it to be. Um, So we're tired of that. And we definitely think that the police and anybody else who's involved on that level um, need to do a lot more investigation and trying to figure out who these people are trying to disturb the peace. May I
0: add to that? Yes, please so i think a really good example a really good concrete example i can give is specifically in coverage that the ajc did on monday of the protests in savannah there is a photo in that group set that shows a young black man caption is you know young man aggressively shouts or something like that right it's just it is him in a moment of anger but what i think is not being said in that is there was a young white man who started like bashing a skateboard on the sidewalk and trying to incite people and we had to intervene to get him to stop. But I think even now, like looking at this photo, you don't know the entire story behind that. And I think it's kind of a self-perpetuating cycle. What we're doing is we're painting this young black man as aggressive, as inciting. And that's essentially why we're here in the first place because we've decided culturally speaking that black men are dangerous and we should fear them and we should police them. And I just, I want to issue like a call to white people in this moment to be very vigilant of that type of behavior from other white people because it inherently puts black people at risk and we cannot be doing that right
1: now. I've seen a lot of commentary, especially on social media from friends, from white people wondering, what can we do if we support this cause um, and know that we have privilege here? And then counterpoints from people of color saying, we don't need to hear you wade through your pain or anxiety or angst right now. We need action. And and I have also interviewed people of color who say, it's you know, it's not my job to educate white people on racism or how to behave. So I'm wondering for you, Coco, how are you navigating when to speak up and when to step back? I think we really need to, and I want to
0: like specifically just speak to like white people in this conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we are in an incredible moment of community trauma, of collective anger. And we as white people should not be policing that or commenting on that. We should be uplifting and affirming what people are saying right now, specifically Black people. In Savannah specifically, we are doing trauma-informed anti-oppression de-escalation practice, which is essentially going into a protest and ensuring that one, um, people who are triggered because of the heaviness of this moment are taken care of, right? It's just saying, I see you and what do you need? Not policing someone's emotion. And it's also making sure that people who come into our communities to incite people, which we have seen record of happening, that those people are not engaged with and are very much pushed on the forefront. So we specifically are also framing it as a tool that needs to be used alongside white privilege. I think in this conversation, what we're seeing And also what we're seeing from police footage all across America is that white bodies are treated incredibly different than black bodies, right? Mm -hmm. And that this is a moment for people to be using their white privilege as a tool to ensure that other people's safety is at the forefront, right? So we're asking white people to put their bodies on the line and ensure that our communities are kept safe.
1: Well, I've seen a lot of that, actually, videos of you know a white person standing in front of a, a person of color when the police are approaching as if some form of protection. I'm just wondering for you, Maurice, sort of looking at this historically, we've seen the most diverse groups ever during the George Floyd protests. What is the role here of not just Black Americans, Black Atlantans, but white Atlantans and sort of centering the white experience in this when there is such much bigger issues going on.
2: So, you know, um, the failure, the failure of how this is being presented in the media is they really the media is presenting it as if this is about George Floyd. It wasn't George Floyd. I want to tell you something about the black experience, Wherever you've seen the most oppression, you've seen the most resistance. Black people have been fighting like hell the whole time, since 1526, not 1619. And so with this being said, I am a big black man. I am six foot one and a half, 225 pounds. And my being Dr. Maurice Hobson wearing a shirt and tie or bow tie does not stop the police from looking at me. When I was 17 years old, the police pulled me over after a big football game in my hometown of Selma, Alabama, and drew down on me. And when they realized that I was, you know, one of the Hobson kids, they let me go. Oh, they're good kids. In college, I played college football, and a lot of my former teammates are police officers. And they are good people. But in 2007, the police in Jackson, Mississippi, tased and killed my first cousin. And I was at the funeral when my grandmother screamed, baby, they shot you down in the street like a dog. When we begin to see all of this, and then you see Brianna Taylor, who is in her own home with her partner, who was shot. You see uh, the murder of Ahmad Arbery, who's on a jog. He's taking a run. They shoot him in the street. And then you see the mismanagement and the failure of the American government with COVID-19. All of this is going on during a pandemic. People are dying. And the sad part about it is there will be more that will die. That's why Black America now is at a fever's pitch. And we must understand, I mean, George Floyd was what pushed this thing over. And for him to yell out, you know, mama, for many of us who are a part of the black community and embody aspects of different kinds of spirituality, it is often said that before you transition out of this world, you see those that have transitioned before you to come to get you. There was a whole expression of African culture that was taking place at that point in time. It's so deep. And so what we must do is we must hold these people accountable just by making them live up to being what America says it's going to be. We don't want to make America great again. We just want to make America great.
1: We're going to take a short break and come back to our conversation with Kim Jackson, Raisa Habisham, Dr. Maurice Hobson, D'Angelo Morrison and Coco Papi. We're talking to Georgians about the George Floyd protests, where they've been, where they are, where they are going. And we'll be back with more after a short break. This is On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Jumping back into the conversation about protests against police brutality and racial injustice in Georgia and across the nation. Despite some arrests for property damage and breaking curfews and sporadic violent confrontations with police... Peaceful protests are the majority and appear to be gaining even more momentum over this past week. There have been crowds of tens of thousands of people in Minnesota, Los Angeles, New York City, Portland, as well as Berlin, London, Amsterdam, Paris, other places across the world. There are so many parts to this, what's happened already, public opinion, how the protests have evolved, how they've been covered, and what the impact of this incredible, unprecedented display of civil disobedience is going to be. So we're getting some perspective on all of that with my panel of guests, Reverend Kim Jackson of the Episcopal Church of the Common Ground, D'Angelo Morrison, he's Director of Services and Advocacy for He is Valuable, Raisa Habisham, who reported on the uprising for the AJC, Coco Papi, an activist from Savannah who has participated in demonstrations there, and we're also getting some historical context from historian and GSU professor Dr. Maurice Hobson. He wrote the book, The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics and Class in the Making of Modern Atlanta. As of Wednesday, all four officers involved in George Floyd's death have been charged. And here in Georgia, the two men who chased down and killed Ahmad Arbery were in court for a hearing, along with a third man who has been charged with an accomplice. It certainly represents progress to some, but we have been talking about how hard it is to change systems, you know, from a policy level. And also, in terms of policing, over the past couple of years, many moves towards reform and policing have been rolled back. And it bears mentioning again that many people in law enforcement know that this is something that needs to change. But I'd like to get your view on some of the broad systemic changes that you think need to happen in order to dismantle racial injustice. I know it's a complex, a kind of a Gordian knot, but I would be interested in hearing from all of you.
3: Uh, so this is a systemic issue. It's not just about policing. It's about education opportunities. It's about housing. It's about It's about the environment. Uh, So this is a lot of systemic issues that need to be addressed. And Some of these things we can address legislatively. Right. So we can get rid of stand your ground laws like that is something that could be done. You know, I want to be clear. People are standing out there not just because of George Floyd, but people are standing out there because black people have been dying from COVID-19 at much higher rates. And we know it's not because we're black. We know it's because of racism. Black people have been dying early. They've been dying from giving birth and and weights that are so much higher than anyone else. And so we're standing out there for those reasons too. There are so many things that we can do to make this world safer and better for all people. You know, this is like the curb cutouts that we see when you're walking down the street, right? Mm-hmm. So a curb cutout, it was made for somebody who was in a wheelchair so that they could get from one curb to the other. But all of us, whether we're in a wheelchair or not, we all benefit from those curb cutouts, right? If you're pushing a stroller, if you're dragging your luggage behind you, those curb cutouts benefit us all. So when we make life better for Black people, we make life better for all of us. And so I think that's the work that we've got to figure out. I think white people need to understand that our lives together are enhanced when we bring justice for everybody.
0: May I uh, just echo two very important points that Reverend Jackson brought up? One, I think it's policy change. Uh, There is no more effective way to sort of meet injustice head on than by equitable policy. This is a great time for cities and counties to be called upon to get rid of chokehold and need hold practices in their police departments. This is a really great time to figure out whether or not your city or your county has a cash bail ordinance for nonviolent misdemeanors because we know how much that feeds into the criminal justice system. At the state level, we are looking at 14% budget cuts right now we're now looking at something that's really incredibly dangerous to our already threadbare social service nets. So I would encourage people to reach out to their state legislators. But I think more so just to really emphasize the practice of like the shared mutual need to do this work. Anti-racism is a practice of love and I would say a spiritual practice for white people to do, right? We cannot have humanity if we're basing ours off the denial of others. And so I would just again, recommend interrogating the ways in which we navigate this world and really committing ourselves to doing that work?
5: I think from a media perspective, um, really embedding ourselves into communities that are doing the work will help with coverage. That way, you can amplify those voices um, and you'll have a better eye and ear as to what's going on in marginalized communities.
2: Um. Let me tell you what I, what I think is going to happen. We're always going to have a population of marginalized people who are not going to believe in democracy because democracy has not done right by them. So let me tell you what I'm calling for, and I'm calling it from the top to the bottom. We need elected officials to be human beings. We need them to make politics be about the people in policy. And the last thing I want to say is I teach that isms, racism, classism, sexism, whatever, equals prejudice plus the use of the abuse of power. Power dictates policy, and policy creates laws.
4: And let me say, to add on to that, if they cannot do that, then step aside. There are so many young people right now energized and ready to run for office. I have a friend here in Atlanta who's running against an older person who's missing, you know, in action. It's time for younger people to be stepping into these leadership roles because these people have been around for years, years, and we are still seeing the same Thing over and over again. We're still having the same discussions over and over again. Young people are tired and we are ready to step up.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm going to close, but I'm very struck by the significance of kneeling, you know, Colin Kaepernick kneeling as a peaceful protest, George Floyd killed by a police officer's knee on his neck for almost nine minutes. And now we see some police kneeling in some cities. uh, Happened in Atlanta on Monday night. Mayor Garcetti of Los Angeles, I think, on Tuesday night of this week, as well as police in Camden, New Jersey, and Flint, Michigan. What is the impact of this symbolic gesture? I'll I'll just say that as a faith leader, um, you know, every
3: time I see someone kneel, uh, that is a posture of prayer, and uh, regardless of kind of faith, belief, and spirituality, it's also a posture of humility. And when I see folks kneel in the streets, when it's police officers and protesters alike, I think it's ultimately a sign of our shared and common humanity and our recognition that we kneel before each other because there is something in someone greater than us all. And that brings us onto equal level, right? So the six foot one Maurice Hobson can kneel and uh, and I can actually see him in the eyes when he does that. There's something really humbling about that act. And I think it is a symbol of hope. Obviously, you know, the officer kneeling and George Floyd's neck was a perversion of that symbol. But fundamentally, that kneeling is a symbol of great hope of our ultimate need for one another, and need for us to be bigger than us as that what we can be as individuals.
4: Yeah, and I I, I acknowledged to um, one of your producers yesterday, the uh, fact that that the police were kneeling and how it kind of awoken something in me. Um, because the kneeling thing with Colin Kaepernick and how everybody made it a negative thing. um, And now you have a police officer kneeling on the neck of a black man. It awakened something in me and, and I don't really know how to explain it, but it was really hard to watch for me, as I think it is for a lot of African American people. All of that really was incredibly uh, damaging. And so I just want to acknowledge that a lot of people are hurting right now. And I really think that particularly here in Atlanta, for Keisha Lance Bottoms, thank you for doing everything she's doing. But I really want her to really speak to the pain that a lot of people are experiencing here in Atlanta. I want her to speak to the people. And I know that we have COVID-19 happening and everybody is kind of on pins and needles about that. But I also want her to, in some way, find a way to come out there and see us and see the peaceful things that are happening on the ground. She can wear her mask. She can stand six feet away. Whatever she wants to do, but come out and speak to the people.
1: I want to thank you all for the conversation. Raisa Habersham, who's covered the protest for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Dr. Maurice Hobson, historian, associate professor of African-American studies at Georgia State University and author of The Legend of the Black Mecca. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. Thank you. And Coco Papi, an activist based in Savannah, thank you for your contribution today.
0: Thank you, I'm honored to have
1: been here. Reverend Kim Jackson of the Episcopal Church of the Common Ground in Atlanta, thank you for your time. Thank you, it was an honor. D'Angelo Morrison, Director of Services and Advocacy of He is Valuable, thank you so much for being with us.
4: Thank you, guys. Go vote on June 9th.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, clearly, we could have talked about this for hours, but that is all we have time for today. We do have a lot of stuff in our show notes page, and article on this conversation, including some links to some of the videos that we mentioned today and some of the complicated issues involved in police reform. So you can find that all at gpbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Niswanger and Jake Troyer are engineers. Our intern is Chase McGee. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott, back next week with more On Second Thought.